Again, I want to welcome you. My name is Ike Nicholson, and I'm the senior pastor here at South Suburban Christian Church. Uh, next week, we're going to be starting a five-week series in the book of Genesis. And I, uh, m- most folks, when they start reading the Bible, they start at Genesis chapter 1. And we normally lose them about Leviticus. But um, <clears throat> uh, we want to uh, take, uh, over the next couple of uh, weeks, five weeks, we want to begin to open up those first couple of chapters of Genesis uh, to be able to reveal to you the wonder and the majesty of not only the scriptures, but how that sets the tone for the rest of the Bible, leading ultimately to the consummation of the gospel story in Jesus Christ. And so I hope that over the next couple of weeks you'll take an opportunity to come and be a part uh, during this series. Both myself and Pastor Drew will be bringing messages, and I pray that uh, you'll make the commitment if you can, at least just for the next five weeks after this Sunday, to come and begin to dig deeper into the book of Genesis, the book that begins it all. Today is um, uh, the conclusion of this brief two-week series, uh, and the lesson today comes from the book of Joshua. And So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn to the book of Joshua, <coughs> uh, Joshua chapter 4. Uh, Joshua is really easy to find, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua. So it's the sixth book in the Bible, and chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I'm not going to read all of chapter 4, but um, I'm going to read the first part and the last part of chapter 4 as we uh, attune our minds and our hearts to God's Word today. So if you found it, follow along with me, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people from each tribe, a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And then jumping down to verse 15. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, 
When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. These are called cairns. They're really nothing more than just a pile of rocks, actually. And although they can be found all over the world by different people, scholars will argue as to their significance. Some of them will say that cairns are unique to a particular culture. Others will say that cairns, these pile of rocks, are unique to a particular religion. But the truth is, is, is that really they're not unique to religions or cultures. They're very much rooted in what it means to be humans. We humans, for some reason or another, love to pile up rocks. Now, to prove this, I can take you to our own front yard where our front garden has some river rocks, and our youngest daughter, Eleanor, always likes to go gather a bunch of these rocks up and pile them up in front of the door. She likes to build cairns. And I ask her, Eleanor, why are you doing this? And she simply responds with only the wisdom of a three-year-old, I don't know, because I want to. So, you see, we humans love to put piles of rocks everywhere. Now, my family's heritage is Scottish and Scandinavian. If you're a historian, you can figure that out. We'll talk about that another day. It's not necessarily a good thing that Scottish and Scandinavians came together, at least for the Scottish at the time. And both of those cultures, both Scottish and Scandinavian, they're really famous for putting piles of rocks everywhere. If you go over to Scotland or any of the nations of Scandinavia, you can find cairns all over the countryside. Now, now recently, and when I say recently, I mean the last couple of hundred years, these piles of rocks have come to be ways to identify a particular trail or, or to be able to keep travelers on a, on, on, on a path that's safe and, and uh, away from natural disaster or or uh, robbers that might be hidden. But thousands of years ago, archaeologists tell us that these piles of rocks, these cairns, were symbols or memorials that were established uh, for particular purposes. Now, some of these piles of rocks actually have been identified as correlating with certain astrological events. For some reason, the way these piles of rocks are set up you can predict when seasons will change, when planets are in certain orbits. And it's amazing that thousands of years ago, our forebears knew more about the universe than perhaps even we do today. It sort of challenges the whole idea that people that lived before us were somehow primitive. Well, in these piles of rocks, we try to figure out what they mean. And, and, and in some cases, they're just ways to establish that something great happened at a particular place in Scotland or in any of the nations of Scandinavia, or even in Wales and, and Ireland and places of England and throughout the world. In some of the situations, these piles of rocks can be huge. 
And scholars think that these piles of rocks were to mark perhaps a grave of a great hero. In Celtic uh, colloquialisms, there's even a phrase that goes something like this, and I can't really do the accent quite as well, but you'll pick it up. When you die, I'll put a stone on your cairn. And it's a way of showing respect. It's a way of saying, I recognize the importance of who you are and what you've done in the world today, and and I love you, and I respect you, and I honor you. And these huge cairns that uh, are up uh, probably are graves of great military leaders, or, or clan leaders, or religious leaders. And our text today recounts the building of one of the most famous cairns, one of the most famous piles of rocks in history. Now, if this is your first day, if this is your first Sunday to South Suburban Christian Church, I've already said to you that we don't typically keep a tree and a waterfall at the front of the church house. Tomorrow, Vacation Bible School begins at 9 a.m., and we're looking forward to welcoming over 100, maybe 150 young people to this place with the high honor that we have of sharing with them that God loves them through Jesus Christ. Now, this week, this coming week, our young people will be learning about the Hebrews and how they found themselves in bondage in Egypt and the time that they spent there as slaves. These young people that are going to come are going to hear about how God liberated his people from that land of bondage and how he raised up a man named Moses and his brother Aaron as they led these people through the wilderness, across the Red Sea, and how for 40 years they wandered until the day that they came to the Jordan River. This place that for them is finally the end of the journey. Now remember, at the time Joshua is written, Moses, this great leader, has died. He's buried somewhere near Mount Nebo in Jordan. You can go to that place today and gaze across the landscape and see the same things that the eyes of Moses saw. It is an extremely humbling event. If you haven't been to the Holy Land, put that on your bucket list. And specifically, make sure that you get to Mount Nebo. Now, another thing to remember, and another thing that's powerfully important for us to remember... is is that they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And because of their faithlessness in that wilderness, God sentenced the Hebrew people to this fate, that none of the people who had been slaves in Egypt would be allowed to step foot into the Promised Land. So at this moment in time, in Joshua chapter chapter 4, every single person who came out of Egypt who was in bondage is dead. Isn't that a wonderful part of the story? And that every person that is gathered around Joshua as he's speaking to them the words of God are people who were born after they left Egypt. These folks have never felt the sting of the whip of the Egyptian taskmasters. These folks only know about the time of bondage from the stories of their parents around the campfires. The life of suffering that their parents endured is a part of their identity, 
but it's not something that they personally experienced. And now, at the banks of the Jordan River, Joshua is about to take this whole new generation across the river and into the promised land. This river that is the boundary between a legacy of persecution and bondage, their old identity of being slaves to powers influenced by darkness, is about to be transformed into a new identity. The beginning of something that will literally change the world and Western culture. Western civilization is based upon the morals and beliefs and understandings of God that were given to us by the Hebrew people. The entirety of what we base our civilization on with regard to law and order and community and nations and yes, definitely our faith in the one true God is because of these people about to cross this river. As a matter of fact, I could say, and I think you'd agree with me, that literally the eternity of millions of people who have believed the message of Jesus Christ throughout the world is because of these people at the banks of this river. And when they cross over this river, this river that is much bigger than it is today, if you go there today, it looks like a ditch. And there's reasons for that. But in the time of Christ, it was a huge river, deep, swift, flowing from the Sea of Galilee in the north all the way to the Dead Sea in the south. Some monumental things are going to happen. The priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which is really nothing more than a box, well, it's a really pretty box, but a box, and inside this box, there's a few things. The stone tablets upon which the Ten Commandments were written, a gold jar in which is some bits of manna that God used to feed the Hebrew people, and the staff of Aaron that budded, which was a part of the miracles that happened to allow the Hebrew people to gain their freedom from Pharaoh before his heart was hardened. And these priests would heave this box on their shoulders, and on top of this box, angels' wings, cherubim, formed a mercy seat, upon which the Hebrew people literally believed God rested when he came to dwell with his people. And as these priests would step and their feet would touch the water, the miracle is, is that the Jordan River stopped flowing entirely. The same way that the Red Sea was parted when the Egyptian army was following the Hebrew people in an effort to slaughter them. And here's what's really interesting about this. Joshua, by command of God, says to the, uh, the Hebrew people, pick one person from each of your tribes, and as you're walking on the dry ground through the Jordan River, I want you to stop where the priests are standing in the middle of the river on dry ground and pick up a stone, symbolic of your tribe. From the middle of the river, 12 stones are gathered up, and carried onto the other side of the Jordan River, where Joshua will eventually make the fo- most famous cairn of all, the most famous pile of rocks of all in Gilgal, as a sign of God's faithfulness. 
What do these rocks say to us? These stones cry out. Joshua tells the Hebrew people, these stones will speak to you and to the generations that follow you. The first thing that these stones cry out, it's, it's in the first line of the text that I read to you today. It's a word. It's actually the fourth word in the text that I read to you today. A, a seemingly insignificant word. A word that if you were probably reading it by yourself, you'd just skip over and keep getting it. And, and let, 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 me, let me share it with you. When all the nation, the words nation, Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you because you've read the entirety of Scripture. You know the nation of Israel. But you may not have picked up that as these stones cry out, you are a nation, this is significant. Because this is the first time in the scriptural story that the word nation is used to identify the Hebrew people. Now, you might say to me, now, preacher, I've read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. Well, I might not have read Leviticus, preacher, but I went on and got to Numbers and Deuteronomy. Seems to me that I've heard the word nation. And it's true, the word nation is used, but it's always used as something that will happen. It's a futuristic identification. You will be my nation. This is the first time that the word is in present tense. You are my nation. At this moment... They are a nation. In February of 2015, 21 Egyptian Christians were beheaded on a beach by ISIS. You might remember that in the news. The crime of these 21 people? Well, the murderers justified the slaughter of these 21 brothers as, quote, the people of the cross. That was their crime. And you know what? It's true. The accusation was true. They were people of the cross. By the way, it's the same identification that you and I carry. We are people of the cross. Now, this whole image of our position in the present world has been captivated by hymns and spirituals and songs and psalms. And perhaps the most famous comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, where we are told that we are sojourners and exiles. But if you just go a few verses before that, Peter also reminds us that we are a, quote, chosen race, a royal priesthood. Are you ready? A holy nation. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, just like we were reminded last week, in the message, that the Hebrew people's being taken into slavery symbolizes our own slavery to rebellion and sin. And and how the story of the Hebrew people and their time in slavery is an opportunity for you and I to, to come to grips and to understand the bondage that we have in this world 
the bondage of our own brokenness, the bondage of our own hate, the bondage of our own greed, the bondage of our own selfishness, and our need to be redeemed from those chains of bondage. Just like that was symbolic of where we were before Christ, so is today's lesson with the Hebrew people. A symbol for us who are being redeemed, have been redeemed, and will be redeemed through the wondrous work of Jesus Christ. That you and I, when we claimed the title people of the cross, when we placed our trust in Jesus Christ, when we said that we would be disciples of Jesus Christ, when we were adopted into the family of God by the blood of Christ, we became a nation of priests. In the Protestant church, we identify that august position with this phrase, the priesthood of all believers. And what that means is like Aaron, Moses' brother, the first high priest, we're called to sacrificially live our lives for others. And like the priests of old, we also offer intercession on behalf of not only those who are fellow followers of Christ, fellow people of the cross, but are you ready? For the whole world. Even for those who would hate us. Our call is to plead with God to love them and redeem them. Our call is to plead with God to bless our enemies. To bless those who would persecute us. Some of you are saying, I didn't think I, didn't think I signed up for that. You see, these stones cry out, Joshua says. As these stones are piled up by Joshua, Joshua says to the people, these stones cry out that the impossible comes to pass. You know, it's one thing to pick up stones on the riverbank or in your front garden. It is a completely different thing to pick up stones in the middle of a river. It is impossible to do that. In 1973, there was a woman named Yvonne Jean Hitchens. You may never have heard of her. But in 1973, she committed suicide. She was married to a man of great importance, but she fell in love with a pastor. And this pastor and her developed a relationship it's the thing that newspaper articles are made of and magazine articles are made of. And this pastor, because of this illicit relationship with Yvonne, was defrocked, which means he was stripped of his standing as a pastor in the, in the Church of England. And the two of them went off to Malta on a romantic vacation and decided that the best way that they could seal their relationship would be to commit suicide together. And so they took an overdose of sleeping pills. She successfully ended her life, but her lover, a guy named Timothy Bryan, woke up and distraught at what had happened, he went into the bathroom of the hotel and slit his wrists. Now why do I tell you this story? Some of you are like, yeah, why? 
Well, you don't know her, but I bet you know one of her sons because she left behind two sons. And one of them is a guy named Christopher Hitchens, the author of God is Not Great, and a noted atheist who publicly debates, debated against Christian apologists before he succumbed to esophageal cancer in 2011. What you may not know is that his brother, named Peter Hitchens, was just as impacted by his mother's death as anyone else would have been. This kind of situation, this kind of crisis in life is typically one of those things that we say is impossible to overcome. When a servant of the church betrays the trust and tears apart a family, that's not something you get over easy. Especially when that servant of the church was also complicit in ending the life of their mother. Peter was so angry that he took the Bible that his mother and father had given to him when he went away first to school and took it out and burned it as his act of complete rejection of the church and of God. And for years, Peter worked alongside his brother, arguing that not only was Christianity false, but the existence of a God that actually cared was ludicrous. Until one day, Peter, who was on an assignment, he was a journalist, had gone to France and went into a hospital, and there in the lobby of the hospital stood a painting, a huge painting. The painting was entitled The Last Judgment by Roger van der Weyden. He's a 14th century artist. I'm sorry, a 15th century artist who had painted this. Unknown guy. Most of you have never heard of him. But as Peter gazed at that painting of the Last Judgment, all of the brokenness, all of the pain, all of the tears from his youth and through his adulthood came to his mind and to his heart. And in that moment, with only this painting, hundreds of years old, to lead him to Christ, he sank to his knees and asked Jesus into his heart. And Peter, who's still alive, has become a tremendous defender of the Christian faith. You see, the impossible comes to pass. And I bet every single one of you have a situation of impossibility in your life. Shauna, my wife, and I, sometimes we have to sit together and remind one another of the impossible stories in our life. When, we've, when, when we, like all of you, find ourselves between a rock and a hard place, we have to listen carefully, for even those stones cry out that the impossible will come to pass. When Joshua piled up the rocks, he told the Hebrew people what those rocks would say. And he said that these rocks will cry out, you are all called to tell the people. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 19.
It's actually not right. Well, that's because I'm in John. When I was a young preacher, that would have made me catatonic. I would have had to stop the preaching right now. I've made enough mistakes in 24 years, and I'm over it. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. This is the story of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We call it today Palm Sunday. And this is the story of Jesus getting ready to come into Jerusalem. And let's pick up in verse uh, 36. And as Jesus rode along, they, the crowd, spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, are you ready? The very stones would cry out. I love that story. You see, that's what stones do. They cry out. But you and I know that sometimes it's easier to be silent, don't we? I mean, that's the kind of culture we live in. Our culture doesn't really care what you believe as long as you keep it to yourself. You don't, you don't need to tell other people. You don't need to promote your, your faith. You don't need to indoctrinate the culture. Barna Research, one of the most respected research firms in the nation, recently did a study, and they concluded that about half of the millennials believe that it is, quote, morally wrong to convert non-believers. Now, like most studies, statistics, you know, there's lies, there's darn lies, I cleaned that up for you, and then there's statistics. Statistics can be a dangerous thing. And after the hoopla began to die down and all the secularists were happy and they had said, we're making headway, we're silencing the Christian message, demographers began to really pull apart the numbers and what they found was astonishing because what they discovered is that it wasn't that millennials believe the sharing of the faith is morally wrong. What they discovered <clears throat> is that millennials are simply more sensitive to how we share the faith. Now, a few moments ago, I told you the story about Peter Hitchens. Now, statistically, those of you in this room who are Gen Xers, baby boomers, and the greatest generation, most of you loved that story, if I don't say so myself. Actually, statistically, about three-fourths of you love that story, and one-fourth of you in those generations are just a little skeptical. That's what the studies say. Because that story is a big story. It's a story about how somebody had rebelled against God, then came to know Jesus Christ, and their whole life was changed, and something positive happened to them. You folks like those stories in those demographic age groups. But for reasons that would probably take more time than we have to unpack, these kinds of stories are not as persuasive to about half of the people born between 1981 and 1996, the millennials. So if you were born somewhere between 1981 and 1996, about half of you hated that story. Millennials are interested in how the faith impacts everyday life. 
How does being a Christian make a difference in how you will not just live your life, but how you will live today? How does being a Christian change your marriage today? How does it impact your job tomorrow? How does it influence, are you ready, the car you buy? How does it influence the house you choose to live in? How does it inform how you treat the poor, the immigrant, the addict, the homeless? And yet the question for this new generation, this new generation that did not spend time in Egypt like many of you, this generation, though, that have wandered in the desert, their question is not, how can Jesus make my life better? For many millennials, that's the faith that they've grown up with. That's the faith that they know. Because we taught it to them. We're the ones that said to them, well, if you accept Jesus Christ, God will bless you. And that has become the reason to become a Christian. And that has fallen on deaf ears of our younger generation. These young people have been marketed to their entire life. That's all they know. On television, on social media, on their phones. Now, the good thing about that is they can smell inauthenticity a mile away. If you're trying to sell them a bill of goods, they will drop you like a hot rock. Now, the other half of those millennials who don't think evangelism is morally wrong, they're not afraid to engage their peers. For that matter, they're not afraid to engage us. And they don't really have a question. This is their approach to evangelism. It's really not a question at all. It's a statement. You have to decide whether you are for or against Jesus, period. Oh, that's kind of jarring. Here's a pile of rocks. Now you think about it for just a second. It's a nice pile of rocks. It's a little nicer than the pile of rocks that Joshua piled up. They're more expensive, to be sure. They're fitted together perfectly. They even have technology and attention to detail. But at the end of the day, and at the end of time, this will be nothing more than a pile of rocks. Shauna sometimes tells me that I'm as stubborn as a rock. Because in the middle of this pile of rock is another pile of rocks, and it's you. You're a pile of rocks. Now, all of these rocks, and all of these rocks, they have a story. What will they say? What will the generation that is about to carry these rocks across the Jordan River, what will they say? Now, I encourage you to consider this. May you and I, this week, live in such a way 
that these rocks will be silent because these rocks will be shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Will Jesus Christ make life better? For some of us. But the truth is that following Jesus Christ is not so that we'll have the SUV and the nice house. Following Jesus Christ is because He is truth. And following truth gives our life meaning, eternal meaning. You see, later in the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, Joshua says this, As for me and my house, we, come on, you know it, shall serve the Lord. I guess you could say, well, well maybe not guess. We are the people of the cross, no matter the cost. We are a holy nation, people for whom the impossible has come to pass. We are a people with a message for the nation. We are for Christ. We belong to Christ, and we commit to him our time, our talent, and our treasure. We commit to him our life, our family, and our destiny. Merciful God, each day we prepare to cross the Jordan River into a more fuller understanding of what it means to be your people. Give us courage that the pile of rocks that we build up will proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. May we, like those crowds that lined the streets in Jerusalem when Jesus came in, forever from our lips praise you. May we, with honesty and integrity, simply share the deepest portions of our hearts, the depths of your love through Jesus Christ, the truth of who you are and who your Son is. O oh Lord, may the good news of Jesus Christ never be silenced because the people of the cross understand its power and its eternal truth. For it is in the name of the one who suffered, died, and rose again, who took his place at your right hand, even Jesus, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, we pray. Amen.